I'm Derek Alexander Pope, and welcome to Hidden Legal Figures. Each week, this podcast rediscovers the untold stories of the American quest for liberty and justice for all. This week, we begin our second season where we take a look at the legal efforts associated with an often ignored, little understood, but very important period in our nation's history. And that period is called Reconstruction. It was Tuesday, April 11, 1865, and in the early evening a crowd had gathered onto the north grounds of the White House. Just two days earlier, Robert E. Lee, the General-in-Chief of the Armies of the Confederate States, had surrendered to Ulysses S. Grant, the Commanding General of the United States Army. At long last, the war between the states was over. And now a silent, intent multitude had come to the executive mansion, expecting to hear a rousing victory speech. The commander-in-chief had other ideas instead. He had led the Union the whole four years it was torn apart by war, but now Abraham Lincoln felt it was time to repair the Republic and prepare its people for the longer battle of becoming reconciled in peace. He stepped to the window over the main door of the White House where speeches were customarily given at that time. Noah Brooks, a reporter for the Sacramento Daily Union, held a lantern so the president could see his speech and young Tad Lincoln, the president's 12-year-old son, scooped up each page that fell to his father's feet. Lincoln looked out at the sea of faces stretching into the misty darkness, breathed a heavy sigh, cleared his throat, <clears throat> and spoke words that lit the fuse for a new conflict, one that burns even to this day. Reconstruction is fraught with great difficulty. We simply must begin with and mold from disorganized and discordant elements. It is unsatisfactory to some that the elective franchise is not given to the colored man. I myself would prefer that it were now conferred upon the very intelligent and on those who serve our cause as soldiers. Abraham Lincoln, April 1865. Polite applause followed. Standing in the crowd was a distinguished-looking gentleman. No doubt Mr. Lincoln recognized the president of the National Equal Rights League when he saw him. John Mercer Langston was a lawyer like Lincoln, and he had long been an advocate for the right to vote, and he was pleased with what the president had to say. But most of the crowd stood in confusion. What did he say? What was all that? The people understood the call for a righteous and speedy peace, but what was all of the talk about new government in Louisiana? And the elective franchise, the right to vote of all things, being given to... to the colored man? 
As the baffled cluster of people began to thin out, one troubled soul lingered in the foggy shadows. The words echoed in his ear. It is unsatisfactory to some that the elective franchise is not given to the colored man. Over and over they tumbled back and forth in his mind, keeping rhythm with the clickety-clack of horse carriages darting past the White House. I myself would prefer that it were now conferred upon the very intelligent. If others were confused, he was filled with contempt. John Wilkes Booth was overheard to say, That means nigger voting. By God, I will run him through. That is the last speech he will ever make. Four days later, Lincoln lay dead from the assassin's bullet. The crowning crime of slavery was the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. It was a new crime, a pure act of malice. No purpose was served by it. It was the simple gratification of a hell-black spirit of revenge. Frederick Douglass, April 1870. Reconstruction meant different things to different people. To some, it was simply a way of bringing the former Confederate states and the Southerners who had rebelled against the Union back into the good graces of the nation. To others, it was something more, a rebirth, a chance to remake the country into the more perfect Union bragged about in the opening passage of the Constitution. But if the nation was going to be a more perfect union, who would be responsible for perfecting it? Was that the duty of the president? Was it the obligation of Congress? And for that matter, what responsibility did the states bear? Another complication was under what conditions would the states be returned to the union and how would those who had participated in the rebellion themselves be treated? And of course, the big issue, the treatment of those who had formerly been enslaved. The infamous Dred Scott decision had said, of course, that they were never intended to be a part of the community of citizens. That decision was the fuse that lit the spark for the Civil War. That was the original disturbing cause. And now that the war had been concluded, how could those who had been recently emancipated who had once been regarded as all of the persons be invited to and accepted as a welcome addition to we the people. The first hint came in December 1863 when Lincoln gave his annual State of the Union message to Congress. Lincoln announced a plan that would make Reconstruction the duty of the president. And that's why the first phase of Reconstruction is called Presidential Reconstruction. The first step in this first phase centered on how to get the states back into the Union and how to treat those who had taken part in the rebellion. It was called a proclamation of amnesty and reconstruction. If they took an oath to obey all emancipation laws, and if 10% of that state's voters who had participated in the 1860 presidential election signed that oath, Lincoln's proclamation would give those a pardon for any role they had played in the rebellion. 
and the Confederate states could be brought back into the Union if their government adopted a provision that both recognized and declared the permanent freedom of the colored race and provide for their education. Like the Emancipation Proclamation, this was a wartime measure, not really a blueprint for the post-war South. It was designed to detach whites from the Confederacy. And with the exception of the status of permanent freedom, it did not mention voting rights or any rights for blacks at all. For some in Congress, the ones called the Radical Republicans, like Thaddeus Stevens of Pennsylvania and Senator Charles Sumner of Massachusetts, Lincoln's proclamation of amnesty and reconstruction did not go far enough. It was too charitable. It treated the slaveocracy with too much leniency. And it did nothing to guide the transition of black people from the dark shadows of enslavement to the bright radiance of citizenship. But Lincoln had too much prestige for them to challenge and his leadership was not in doubt. That prestige would give him an electoral college landslide the next November, and when he asked Congress to pass a constitutional amendment to end slavery, May we not agree that the sooner, the better? His leadership was on full display that December 1864 in his annual message to them. But he would continue to insist upon a benevolent treatment for the rebels themselves. In late March of 1865, at a meeting in the general's headquarters in City Point, Virginia, he told Grant to Let them all go, officers and all. I want submission and no more bloodshed. We want those people to return to their allegiance and submit to the laws. That was the same theme he had offered the nation in his second inaugural address earlier in the month. With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right, let us strive to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. But with his death, the attempts at presidential reconstruction fell to his successor, Andrew Johnson, a sympathizer to the hue and cry of states' rights. Johnson would use the powers of the presidency to pull the country back into its old habits instead of pushing it ahead towards new ideals, and he set his sights on an apparatus that, if it could have been successful, would have spared this nation 150 plus years of a kind of misery that only comes from missed opportunity. Its formal name was the Bureau of Freedom and Refugees and Abandoned Lands, but it was more commonly known as the Freedmen's Bureau. It was another of Lincoln's wartime measures Congress had already passed by the time Johnson assumed the presidency. It was supposed to remain in existence for one year after the war, and it was to be the means by which Lincoln would hold the principal reins of conducting the plan of Reconstruction. In February 1865, the Bureau was set up as an agency of the Department of War, coordinated by the Army as a way to organize a system of labor between black workers and white planters, to establish schools, 
and to administer lands that had been confiscated by the Union Army. But one of the Freedmen's Bureau's other powers penetrated the Southern way of life deeply and foreshadowed a way of protecting and safeguarding the interests of black people. Bureau agents acted as legal advocates for black people in federal and local courts. Some of the cases included helping them reconnect with family members who had been separated by slavery. But most of the legal issues centered on settling disputes about wages paid to black workers. The Freedmen's Bureau recommended that black workers be paid $144 a year plus food and shelter. At $12 a month and working six days a week, the average black worker was supposed to earn 50 cents a day. But white planters ignored the Bureau scale and set wages at $50 to $75 a year and deducted pay for any days not worked. Contracts would deduct $5 a day if people missed work for any political activity and $1 if the black worker got sick. That meant in some cases black wages were reduced to a mere two cents an hour and in the worst abuses, compensation of only $2 a month. John Mercer Langston had become an administrator of the Bureau and he saw the effects these contracts were having on black enterprise. The labor contracts were hard, too hard. They placed too heavy a burden, not only on their material prospects, but on their educational and moral condition as well. Yes, they were hard, too hard. John Mercer Langston, 1868. But the Bureau agents would bring lawsuits to ensure fairness in business dealings, to achieve justice in the marketplace, prevailing in some cases and losing in others. But the very fact that those who had acted as masters just a few months ago were now being hauled into court as defendants, having to be held accountable for how they treated those who they were accustomed to mistreating, that was a pill too bitter to swallow. The former slave states wanted to keep the former slaves in a position as close to their former status as they could, so they formally passed laws to create that social form. And the laws they created were called the Black Codes, a series of legislative acts that restricted the legal rights and economic opportunities of black people. And what was most important? The black codes could be enforced and interpreted in the civil courts controlled by planters. These laws prohibited black people from keeping and bearing arms, from serving on juries, from bringing lawsuits or testifying in court against whites, and they imposed harsh criminal penalties like whippings by the lash. One Southern planter even told a bureau agent in June of 1865 that if we cannot whip the Negro, they and I cannot live in the same country. But the worst provisions of the black codes permitted the arrest and conviction of any unemployed black man on a charge of vagrancy. This was designed to force a worker to accept the first job offered, even the ones that paid the lowest wages. Now, the irony of it all was that the refugees being helped the most by the Bureau of Freedmen, Refugees and Abandoned Lands 
were the whites who themselves had been ravaged by the Civil War and now found themselves in a state of disrepair. But it did not matter that whites benefited from the work of the Freedmen's Bureau. What mattered to them was that black people should not. The whites seem wholly unable to comprehend that freedom for the Negro means the same thing as freedom for them. They readily enough admit that the government has made him free, but appear to believe that they still have the right to exercise over him the old control. It is partly their misfortune and not wholly their fault that they cannot understand the national intent as expressed in the Emancipation Proclamation and the Constitutional Amendment. I did not find anywhere a man who could see that laws should be applicable to all persons alike. Even the best men hold that each state must have a Negro code. Sidney Andrews, December 1865. To undo the damage caused by the black codes, Congress passed the first ever civil rights legislation giving complete citizenship rights to black people and prohibiting discrimination. But Andrew Johnson was dead set against any measures that seemed to advance the interests of the newly freed colored people, especially those that placed them on equal footing or in a better position than the poor whites he had grown up with in Tennessee. When he took his oath of office as vice president under Lincoln, and gave his inaugural address, Andrew Johnson was in a drunken stupor, intoxicated from several tumblers of brandy and whiskey. Johnson was known by all to be a womanizer. He was nowhere near held in the same regard as the president who preceded him. He was graceless and thought to be wholly unfit for the office, and he would later be impeached on charges of colluding with the states who had not gained re-entry into the Union. So it was no surprise when he vetoed the attempt at extending the Freedmen's Bureau Bill for another year and the civil rights law. He made his sympathies painstakingly clear. The details of this bill establish for the colored race safeguards which go infinitely beyond any that the government has ever provided for the white race. In fact, the distinction of race and color is made to operate in favor of the colored and against the white race. Andrew Johnson, March 1866. Congress would quickly override the veto and in passing the Civil Rights Act ushered in a new phase. This second phase, Congressional Reconstruction, would give it the authority the radical Republicans had wanted earlier and it would take the form one of its leaders had already expressed. This plan would no doubt work a radical reorganization in Southern institutions, habits, and manners. This may startle feeble minds and shake weak nerves. So do all great improvements in the political and moral world. Thaddeus Stevens, September 1865. The great improvements had been 79 years, 17 presidents, and one civil war in the making. If there was going to be debate about how Reconstruction would take place, the question of who and why were no longer in doubt. We have a duty to perform which our fathers were incapable of, which will be required at our hands by God and our country. When our ancestors found a more perfect union necessary, 
they found it impossible to agree upon a constitution that without tolerating, nay, guaranteeing slavery, they were obliged to acquiesce, trusting to time to work a speedy cure. They had some excuse, some justification, but we have none. Thaddeus Stevens, September 1865. Congressional Reconstruction. That was the next phase, and the radical Republicans made the rights of the newly emancipated front and center. They required each Confederate state to hold a constitutional convention respecting those rights, one of which was the right to vote. David B. Parker, professor of history and assistant department chair at Kennesaw State University, joins us next week to talk about Georgia's 1868 Constitution, and Amos T. Ackerman, a lawyer who played a surprising role in establishing and protecting the right to vote for black men. That and more will be part of our next episode. Thank you for listening and be sure to tune in next week for Hidden Legal Figures, the podcast.